Get your daily news fix by listening to The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. As you might guess, it's like The Daily Show, but for your ears. And studies show that ears are great for listening. So who are we to deny science? Trevor Noah and the world's fakest news team tackle the biggest stories in news, politics, and pop culture. Subscribe to The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition, for highlights and extended interviews, available Tuesday through Friday mornings on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your ears on a podcast. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about several of the ways that average people benefit from collective action, including unionization, class action lawsuits, and politically attuned investing of pooled pension funds, plus why the Democratic Party needs to get wholeheartedly on board with policies that unwaveringly support working people and empower collectivism. Clips today come from The Brian Lehrer Show, The Bradcast, The Zero Hour, This Is Hell, Belabored, and The Michael Brooks Show. The way that change happens in this country is, A, we have to focus very deeply on the power structure analysis of every fight we're in. We have to focus very deeply on strategy. And strategy suggests, if you think about it, listen, I'm the first one to say unions are far from perfect. Uh, I have two books where I argue that unions are far from perfect. But what I do argue is they are the only thing left standing in this country that has the potential power to challenge the billionaire class and to right-size this democracy. So When the political system is as skewed as it is by both the repealing the Voting Rights Act, they you know, they're, they're constantly going at the Voting Rights Act, they're going at affirmative action, they're going at everything. So the the one way that we can build power when the political system is as controlled as it is, is by doing what the West Virginia, Arizona, Oklahoma, North Carolina workers did, which is saying, we're not going to wait for a political solution. We're going to act as trade unionists like we did in the 1930s and 40s in this country, the last time we were facing fascism, and we're going to start to walk off the job until we get what we demand. My guest, if you're just joining us, is Jane McAlevey, a labor and environmental organizer, a postdoctoral fellow in the Labor and Work-Life Program at Harvard Law School, and the author of the book, now out in paperback, No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power in the New Gilded Age. And we can take couple of phone calls in our remaining time at 212-433-WNYC-433-9692. And let's take a call from Lisa in Flushing. Lisa, you're on WNYC. Hi. Yeah, hi. How are you doing? Okay. Um, thank you for taking my call. I come from a union family, um, Local 3, International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers in, in New York City, and I have to say that um, it's very, I find it very uh, disconcerting that most people don't understand how unions benefit people's lives. When the, you know, the public, is, unions have been maligned for, you know, for many, many years. Unions provide educational opportunities, the union members' families, the list goes on and on. My Le- why unions have have undeservedly gotten so much bash, bashing over the years. Lisa, thank you very much. Um, and and why do you think this is a central question? We're down to about I think six percent of the private sector workforce being unionized anymore. It's about a third of the public sector workforce, which is probably why 
the Janus decision, the Janus case goes after public sector unions in particular. But what happened? Yeah, well, there's a, <laughs> we need more time for what I happened. Know. But but there's been a really serious, concerted, very well financed attack on the trade union movement. And I'm going to give two quick examples to, to speak right to Lisa's call and her question. What happened? Why don't people know? Let me start with a group called the Concerned Veterans of America. Um, most stories that we hear on N. PR daily or any NPR affiliate daily about all these bad stories about what's happening at the Veterans Affairs Department at the VA. What's fascinating and most people don't know is that 95.6% of the veterans in America like the VA. They want to keep the VA. They want their VA public. But to her point, there's a new organization that was formed a couple of years ago called the Concerned Veterans of America. Sounds great, doesn't it? It's a Koch-funded operation that has that is responsible for most of the daily news attacks on the VA. They go out looking for a bad example of it, and then they highlight it. So by now you think America's vets must just want private health care, don't they? So the Koch brothers can make more money on a privatized health care system. They don't. The point is that's one of many examples of the really well-funded systematic attack. Stanford Children has made, in the education sector, has made a 10-year campaign to demonize teachers. I want to go back to West Virginia and all the six states where the workers held massive strikes this spring. Because what's interesting to me, again, as a strategist, is that 10 years into a war on teachers in this country, to a teacher in every state, when they stood up and walked off the job, the parents supported them. There's something very dynamic coming in this country about a women-led, mostly women of color-led um, future labor movement that's going to be dominated by the education and healthcare sector, which is why they're going after things like the VA, as well as not just the VA, but also, you know, the education sector again, right? They want to privatize it all. And they're, and they, and what's interesting to me is, we do have a chance to have a new trade union movement, and it is already being women-led. That's what we just saw in massive walkouts in six states, and there's more coming. And, you know, we even have our own poll finding on this. We did a WNYC Brian Lehrer Show Harris poll just this month with, uh, in conjunction with our history series on the culture wars, the AIDS, and we, asked, we specifically tested are they doing more harm or more good for the United States, these striking teachers recently? And they polled over 50% for the good, which for all the attacks on teachers unions over the years, you thought might, I thought might not happen. Absolutely. It was total. In fact, a majority of Republicans, as well as Democrats, it was even higher. It was like eight out of 10 Republicans support the right of teachers to go on those strikes. There was a crazy series of really good polls. But, um, yeah, I don't know if you want to ask another question, but there there is one key point I wanted to make about the twenty sixteen the twenty eight twenty sixteen. It was twenty sixteen and the twenty eighteen election. Mm -hmm. Right now, I just want to explain something that's really core. The thing about union organizers who have run hard campaigns, and I have to say I have been involved in many of them, um, is that we're what Trump is doing and what the forces behind Trump are doing right now are very familiar to us. Their number one goal is to divide the working class. They polarize. Their first goal is to make it so you only talk to your friends. Their second goal and their real goal is to drive something called futility. Futility is actually a strategy in the United States. When we analyze the stages of the employer campaign against the workers, they literally have a goal of making it so that no one wants to talk anymore. Hey, how are you going to vote in the union election? Don't talk to me about that. I know I'm voting, da-da-da. 
the reason I knew that Trump was going to win, which I did predict months before he won, was because family members in this country would no longer talk about the coming election. They would say things like, it's too painful. I can't wait till it's over. And what he's doing in part with his racist immigration agenda right now is trying to get it so that people no longer can talk once again, because it's a strategy to demobilize the American voter. The only organization in this country capable of unifying people against that kind of a campaign is unions where people have to battle out the very contested ideas day in and day out in the workplace when they're trying to fight for a better contract. How can the labor movement make a comeback? Strategies, you're a strategist, you've been talking about some of the strategies. I know you write in the book that all labor victories are not equal, and in fact, some labor victories are in reality setbacks. So what should the focus be, in your opinion? I think two things. One is I say in no shortcuts that the future of the next labor movement is going to be women in what I call mission-driven professions. That's education and healthcare for several reasons. One, as we're seeing in these education strikes this spring, it's hard to demonize your local teacher. It's just hard to do. They've been doing it for 10 years, waiting for Superman, well-funded campaigns, the charter school campaign, 2016 ballot. The only good news in 2016, frankly, was that, that the teachers and the communities in Massachusetts voted down an expansion of charter schools. Very complicated, right? That's really just privatization of public schools. So I, I say in no shortcuts, the future is going to be women-led in what I call the mission-driven sectors, people who go to work because they care deeply about their workplace every day. They happen to be mostly women and mostly women of color, and they have a profound connection to their community in a way that simply can't be ruptured uh, very easily. And so, you know, uh, nurses have a very specific connection to their community. It's hard to turn against them. Um, no matter what the, the well-funded Koch brothers campaign has said about teachers and education workers and healthcare workers in this country, when they walk off the job, their community stands up and supports them. That is the future in this country. We, we just have 20 seconds, but it sounds like that dovetails with the 2018 midterm election campaigns. It does dovetail, but people have to be on guard for, for the fact that they're running what's called a futility strategy, which means they're trying to make it so no one talks to each other. Keep talking to people who you don't normally talk to. That's the most important thing to do between now and the election. Don't just talk to your friends. Talk to people who you don't usually talk to. switch to as dysfunctional a family relationship as you can find progressives and unions. Now, unions exist, obviously, to keep their members and their members' jobs alive, safe, vital, and properly compensated. And a lot of that is ipso facto opposed to right-wing values, profits uber alles, social and business Darwinism. But it is not a clean picture. I'm sure you've already figured that out. Thomas Neuberger blogs as Gaius Publius. He took his cue for a current column from The Intercept, with its post, carpenters, steamfitters, and other trade unions coalesced around notorious Ferguson prosecutor. Why? That article probed union backing for Bob McCulloch, whose half-hearted failed prosecution of Ferguson police officer Darren Wilson got him off the hook for shooting Mike Brown. Wesley Bell knocked him out of contention for the November election. Yay. Bell has the makings of a real progressive. He believes in prison and justice reform to address bail inequality and massive black incarceration rates. Did the union stand against him just to save jobs? 
Tom says it is more complicated than that. His post is on his website, Down With Tyranny, and at this very moment, he is on the other end of the phone line. Hi, Tom. How are you, Angie? Good to be with you. I'm glad to have you. Thanks. You know, it's it's a natural shared interest for corporations and unions to unite over keeping the industries alive and to some extent jobs alive. But that that's not at play here where unions backed a non-progressive status quo with a racist standard. So break that down a bit when it isn't about jobs and when it isn't about saving industries. What's going on there? Well, you know, this is interesting. And uh, thank you for noting the piece. The, the the thing that was interesting to me was was actually a second thing, not the first thing. Uh, the first thing you mentioned that unions and you, I like your language, uh, a dysfunctional family. Uh, unions and progressives uh, don't see eye to eye a, a lot. As I said at the beginning of the piece, the progressive movement is far and away a good friend of labor. The labor movement seems far less a friend of progressives, and that's for me, to me, always been true. I mean, I've, I've seen that my whole life. What is interesting to me is that over the last, let's say, 10 years since since the blogosphere started, so since maybe 03, 05 or so, and since especially because I pay attention to, to climate, the Keystone Pipeline situation, I was in a lot of, of strategy meetings with progressives where progressives would be embarrassed to or, or or felt awkward if anybody raised the idea that it was unions that were going to try to bring them down mm-hmm. because there seemed to be this feeling that we have to support unions because trade unionism is a highly progressive idea in fact it really is a highly progressive idea that we're for unions therefore we can't do things that that bring unions into disrepute, and they kind of ignored the idea that that these unions were their enemies, and they were working for the for the other side. And how do how do they deal with that? Well, how do they deal with that when they're talking to each other? Even so, what I noticed in the um, Ryan Grimm and Aida Chavez piece is that all of a sudden, in the Intercept, people who have very strong progressive credentials, that both the Intercept and these writers are asking the question out loud, are saying, this seems to be a bifurcation. What's going on here? And it's the out loudness that caught my interest. Uh, as, as you mentioned, uh, it's been pretty obvious that unions have been on the other side since what? Since Nixon with the silent majority? Mm-hmm. Since uh, Reagan with the, with the Reagan Democrats? I mean, uh, what? Since Trump? Where, where the, the Fox News contingent in the white working class has been strongly pro-Trump. I mean, those people haven't gone away. We've just got a multi-headed beast here. And as you said in your introduction, it doesn't do to look at just one head and characterize the beast. This has overtones to me, Tom, of the elite working class divide. And I know that like every other generalization, that is deeply, deeply flawed. But over the years, I have seen a number of people, and I live on the coast, you live on the coast, people who live in urban areas have trouble making the case to people who work in the coal industry, people who work in the oil industry saying, look, this is an ultimate good if we eliminate your industries. And it's a very hard case to make. And I can imagine a simmering resentment, much as we hear with so many other issues that divide the urban from the suburban from the rural. All of that is true. Um, the, uh, when it comes to the pipeline, these people were fighting for a lie. 
and they they probably knew that it was a lie. They were fighting for 40 jobs, which were permanent, and a whole bunch of temporary jobs when after the pipeline was built was going to go away. Mm-hmm. So you're looking at the laborers' union, the LIUNA, which is a, a notoriously right-wing Fox News kind of union. Those people were only going to be digging um, or, or carting after during construction. These are construction jobs. These are not permanent maintenance jobs for the pipeline themselves. So what else is going on? I'll, I'll say it just straight up. These are people that hate the hippies. They've hated the hippies since Nixon. It's in that culture, and it has carried through even into I mean, what does Trump appeal to? He appeals, he appeals to that sentiment. Now, as you say, unions are not a, not a single thing. You've got a lot of um, people of color working in the unions these days, and you've got an awful lot of pro-Bernie members working in a lot of these unions. So you've also got divides between the union members and their leaders, mm-hmm. uh, the people who are especially ensconced in those union CEO offices who are, who are never going to leave or going to try to never leave. So you've got that divide as well. There was a version of this piece. I'll, I'll end with this because I know you want to you ask something else. But there was a version of this piece that was printed at Naked Capitalism in the last few days. And that, that commentary group, the commentariat at Naked Capitalism is excellent. Quite a few people who weighed in in that comment section were union members and offered an awful lot of thoughts about what they thought. Because I presented the post as questions, mm-hmm. not answers. Right. And they offered a number of answers that triangulated this in a whole lot of different ways. You can slice through this cake in a lot of ways and still and get information with each slice. So I just want to lay that out there. I don't think there's an answer. Mm-hmm. I think there are answers. And I, I'm just so glad that progressives are starting to ask the questions because those answers will be helpful. Do you see this? And again, your your article posits questions and not answers. But uh, your take on this, do you see this as one of the larger issues of the traditional Democrats versus the progressives that we see playing out in so many other facets? Boy, um, that depends on how you how you would define larger. Uh, how would you define the larger issues? What criteria would you use? Well, we see the blue dogs versus the yellow dogs, and we see that the progressives, the stronger their voice gets, the more we see that just as the unions aren't necessarily the liberals' friends, the Democrats, for those who haven't gotten the memo, are not necessarily the progressives' friends. That's one of the phenomena that worries me as we go into 2020 is that we can see such strong divisions in the responses to Trump and his allies that I, I hope we can get it together. So that's my my version of the larger picture. Um, yes, I I disagree with a lot of people in that I see Trump as not the issue, but an issue among many. Mm-hmm. Um, my model for what's been going on is that there are three armies in the field, not two, and the other two armies both hate us, us being the progressive army. Mm -hmm. The first army that hates us is the Obama and Clinton Democrats who control the party. They aren't the whole of the party, but they're in control of it. And the other is the radical right, which has gotten control of the Republican Party and which is skillfully using Trump to achieve their ends, the Koch brothers' ends. If we don't defeat both armies, we're in deep trouble. 
So both armies, we mm-hmm. can't go back to Clintonism and expect that the country will say, oh, that solves the Trump problem, because before there was a Trump problem, there was a Sanders problem in the Democratic Party. So you're bringing out the, the split. I think the split is absolutely critical. I think that the most important thing that I've seen in the last year or two has been progressive Democrats recognizing that mainstream Democrats, corporate Democrats, and new Dems are their enemy and are acting like it. Because frankly, those people have been punching progressives in the face for the last 10 years. It's about time that the progressives started to fight back and in recognition of that. As a subset of that dynamic, recognizing that unions have some unions and some union leadership and progressive union among the lead progressive union members have been punching um, progressives, hippies, however you want to call it, hippie punching in the face for the last 10 years is uh, also important. I'll give you one example about unions. Um, one of the people who wrote in in that comment section said, I'm a member of IATSE, which I'm sure you know, um, Angie, right. mm-hmm. but it's the uh, it, it's it's a big union in, in Hollywood. It's a big trade union, one of the craft unions, they call it. The members the, the members jumped all over their leadership because uh, IATSE leaders went for Clinton early and hard. And uh, obviously, the, the connection between Hollywood funding and the Clinton wing of the Democratic Party is very, very strong. So the unions represented that interest, which is the money in Hollywood. Um, but the members were very much pro-Bernie. And we're, we're, we're just, their, their interests were shunted aside by the leaders who were currying favor with the Democratic Party. The leaders will say, we're doing that because the Democrats, the mainstream of the Democratic Party is where our interests lie because they're going to win, not progressives. But I think there are cultural, um, uh, obvious cultural clues there as well. Today's episode is sponsored by Blinkist, the app that summarizes more than 2,500 best-selling nonfiction books, packing all of the key insights into short blinks that you can read or have read to you as an audiobook in just about 15 minutes or so. Uh, just today, I-, I listened to all of the key points from two books just while taking breaks from work, uh, one by a person who I knew I would disagree with, but who's been getting a lot of press lately, so I wanted to know what they had to say, and it was nice to just have to hear a little summary of it, and another very interesting and insightful book that I was really fascinated by. And to be honest, you could sort of think of Blinkist as a kind of best of a left, but for books. And of course, the scope of the topics goes far beyond progressive politics. Just like listening to the show, if you don't have much time, then Blinkist gives you access to key insights in a tight package. But also like with this show, Blinkist can be used as a springboard that introduces you briefly to new topics that you can then go and dive deeper into if it strikes your interest. The Blinkist library is massive with lots of classics like The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, but the app is chock full of current bestsellers like 
Fire and Fury, if you were kind of curious about it but never got around to reading it, like me. And one of my favorite recent reads, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. Uh, Even though I read that one, I think I'm going to go listen to the summary just to refresh in my mind. So with more than 2,500 titles to choose from and more being added all the time, you know you're going to find a lot of great stuff to read or have read to you. And right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer for our listeners. Go to Blinkist.com slash best to start your seven-day free trial. You, You could read 20 books in seven days without breaking a sweat. That's Blinkist, spelled B L I N K. A-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash best to start your seven-day free trial. And of course, you can cancel anytime. Blinkist.com slash best. Recent Supreme Court decision could have and will have uh, deep implications for working men and women all across this country, and there has been and continues to be an ongoing legislative assault on the rights of working people to organize and uh, improve their lives. Here to talk about the ruling and the legislative agenda with us now is Roy Hausman. Roy is a legislative representative for the United Steelworkers, which recently had, I believe, if I recall correctly, its annual meeting here in Washington, D.C. So first of all, Roy, thanks for coming on the program. No, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. And was I right? Did you guys have your annual meeting? Yeah, yeah. So um, we had our annual legislative uh, conference, our rapid response conference. We had uh, 650 uh, trade unionists come in uh, from all over the country um, and uh, and actually a few international delegates as well um, to come in and, and discuss uh, three primary issues um, that we uh, re- regarding retirement security, uh, protecting pensions, uh, social, expanding Social Security, um, improving workers' rights through the Wage Act and the Workplace Democracy Act, and then uh, obviously on trade issues as well. Um, and I want to talk about all those agenda items if we can, because mm-hmm. they're all uh, extremely important in my opinion. But I want to start with this. Okay, the Supreme Court decision really made a, a recently made a ruling on arbitration, and and what does that mean for American workers? So um, this case really is a uh, sets a very dangerous um, precedent going forward of um, prohibiting workers to really band together and uh, create a an art you know to basically find recourse from employers that are you know not paying them the proper wages, being able to work you know uh, mass sexual harassment cases, those kinds of items where workers were trying to they couldn't resolve individual items. Um, so by banding together, they could actually pool their resources and, you know, much like a, much like a union, um, collect enough resources to bring forward a case and um, bring forward, you know, be able to try and find some, uh, uh, an ability to find uh, a, a way to move forward and have uh, some sort of justice. Yeah. Because it's really, a, it, it, to me, it seems like it's a mismatch. You, you, you have um, an individual worker, for example, who's been mistreated in some way or, or, you know, has a complaint uh, up against a corporation. The corporation has massive financial resources. Now, maybe hundreds or thousands of uh, individual workers have the same complaint, but if you re- make it in- impossible for them to pool their resources, 
there, there's really no way an individual worker can stand up against a corporation. That's my reading of this. Absolutely. I mean, local, you know, every union, if you're in a union, every local union has a grievance procedure and a, uh, an arbitration procedure. But that the reason that we're, ab we're able to go through that grievance and arbitration, if we have to go to an arbitration board, um, we're able to at least pool resources as a union and the members each there are paying into it. But for a lot of workers, particularly in retail where there isn't a union, um, or in, in other environments where there isn't this opportunity, you, the ability for you as an individual to, to seek regress from, you know, from the government is, is being severely limited and being basically privatized. I mean, and that's a key piece here is that for, by forcing these workers to go to forced arbitrations and mandatory arbitrations, you're creating a separate court system. And it's, it's absolutely unfair for uh, basic American workers and one of the basic protections that we expect under, under our constitution and laws. And these separate sort of privatized court systems, it's a lot like the way people sign away their rights when they uh, sign a telecommunications contract, a phone contract, or a cable TV contract, mm -hmm. any other corporate contract. Uh, the people doing the arbitrating tend to have, tend to be lawyers and other people who do a lot of business with the corporations. The decisions tend to lean heavily toward the corporation and against the individual. So uh, what can people do? Obviously, unionizing is one response wherever people can, right? What are some other things people can do to push back on this? Obviously, um, you know, the, the best part about our legislative system and the way our uh, uh, process is set up is that Congress can change the law. They can uh, overrule the Supreme Court through changing the law to try and say that the intent is to allow workers to band together and that the um, you know, the NLRB process that this entire court case was based off of um, was the right path. And so by, you know, Congress in, uh, intentionally moving forward, and obviously the best way to do that is ensure that we have elected officials that are willing to listen and willing to move forward in this. This is something that people should definitely ask about because when a half of workers are forced into arbitration panels, and that's really what we're talking about now, almost half the workforce is has an, an arbitration clause in, in, in their employment contracts. And to have this sort of uh, broad scope arbitration stuff, it prevents you to access your, your right as a citizen towards uh, legal regress. labor address issues that it has with capitalism without participating in capitalism? Probably not, in my view. Um, you know, I, I think that this is an echo of the same kind of argument that we heard in prior decades about, you know, don't get engaged in electoral politics. Or, you know, you go back to the 50s, 60s, and 70s when unions were a lot more powerful than they were today. They were critical, absolutely critical. They're still important today, but not like they were back then. They were a critical part of, say, the Democratic Party power structure. And on the one hand, one can point to examples of how, as becoming part of that structure, they may have, from time to time, uh, lost touch with their roots and what they should have been doing. I think that that is a risk. On the other hand, I think most of us would agree that working people in this country were better off when unions were strong and powerful and had to be dealt with. And yes, the power structure had to come to them for help and getting elected and for sources of funding and so on and so forth. I think we're in a sort of similar situation now with, with capital markets in the 21st century. I think we all know 
uh, how powerful these entities are. We know that capital sloshes around the globe very quickly. And what I try to do is provide examples in the book of how some activists, by no means all, but how some have figured out ways to use their own capital to advance the ball. So let me give you an example. Okay, New York City has significant pension funds, $190 billion in assets. They recently adopted uh, a responsible contractor policy, which basically says when we make investments in infrastructure or if we make investments in real estate, you're going to hire, anybody we invest with has got to hire union workers, pay fair wages, pay benefits, or we're not going to invest period. Now, for too long, many pension funds have just gone ahead and made these investments anyway without caring about the worker side of the story. So New York City comes out and does this. And now, well, what happens subsequently? Suddenly, Blackstone, which has $100 billion pulling together an infrastructure investment plan, says, you know what? Fine. We want the capital. We're going to adopt the policy ourselves. Right? That's the kind. We were seeing this happen in, in, in cities like Cleveland. I just spoke to a union leader who was doing this in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, where uh, the example there was that there is a well-known builder in Cleveland that doesn't use uh, union labor doesn't pay fair wages and benefits. And that person's been doing a lot of building in Cleveland. Well, finally, some of the unions got to, you know, basically said, look, we're not going to invest in projects like this. Uh, We are not going to invest in your project if you're not going to hire union labor. Well, guess what? They suddenly did a 180 because they needed that, that capital. That's an example of how, if you're thinking creatively, that capital can be used to make good investments. Yes, it pay off for retirement benefits down the road, but that actually put workers, back to work, getting good wages, paying into their pension funds. It does have the potential to create a virtuous circle using unions' own money, using workers' own money. And I think, I think, is that the solution to all of labor's problems? No, but I think we've got to be thinking more along these lines if we're going to turn around some of these trend lines. A few weeks ago, we were talking, a couple months ago, actually, actually we were talking to Mary Botari and uh, talking about the Supreme Court the Janice case, and she was telling us how many of these public pension funds actually invest in things that work out to be anti-worker. How much of the problem isn't that the pension funds aren't uh, being uh, activists when it comes to being shareholder activists, but they're actually supporting the kind of policies that undermine their own workers? How much is that the issue? Absolutely. I think that that is an issue, and I think that's part of what some of the struggle is. Some of these pension funds have been captured. Let me give you an example. Uh, 2004, the teachers' unions in Florida uh, were fighting against the reelection of Jeb Bush as governor. Okay, They're pushing against him being reelected. He is, in fact, reelected. Shortly thereafter, what happens? The, there's a big investment by Florida's pension funds in a company called Edison Schools. What does Edison Schools do? Edison Schools basically privatizes public school services, okay? Half of that money, by the way, that went into that is basically teacher pension money. So there you have an example of how teachers' pensions, own pensions in that state, were used to fund a company that directly undermines the interests of the people who contribute to it. I talked to another guy, a custodian in Massachusetts, who had, whose pension was invested in Aramark. This is a guy who'd worked there for 20 years. He'd been making 20 bucks an hour. And then Aramark, after his retirement fund is invested in it, 
turns around, underbids his union for the contract, and offers him his own job back for $8.50 an hour. So those are the worst examples, Chuck. Those are, that is exactly how everything could go wrong. However, the answer to that isn't just to say, oh, throw up your hands, it's all a disaster, this is never going to work, because there are, the example I just gave of New York City, there are a whole bunch of activists inside labor, inside the pension funds, who are waking up to these realities and are, are, are turning the story around, right? Because just in the same way that these private equity funds and others want this to get their hands on this capital, okay, that therefore makes it a source of power. Just like labor's labor, right? We're talking about labor's capital. Labor's labor. Why is labor's labor the fact that it's actually, right, the, the working power provided by working people? Why is it valuable? Why in the past has it have has labor not as much as it used to be able to? But how? Why in the past was labor able to use that power to get concessions from management? It's very simple because management needed that needed those workers to build their products. It's the same thing today with labor's capital. Management needs that capital to build these products. And so just as labor organized itself as labor, so too it should organize itself in terms of the significant pension funds that it has. And I provide many examples in the book of exactly how this has happened. And by the way, so, so I'm not. I'm, yes, that could be a danger, but it also is an opportunity. And I think people who recognize it as an opportunity have been able to turn the tide. And by the way, I should point out that we're not just talking about those kinds of issues. I mean, these pension funds have been at the forefront of going after CEO runaway CEO pay, of you know going after essentially rigged corporate elections, of and of also of lobbying in 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 D.C. for you know, registration of private equity funds and so on and so forth. So there's a lot that can be done with this power. And in my view, in the 21st century, if you're not in this game, um, everything is going to be, will be decided against you anyway. The pension funds that you say should be employed in this kind of uh, shareholder activism, those are the same pension cr- uh, funds that we're being told within the media on a nightly basis are in crisis. You write, explore, you write, quote, explore the well-funded and forceful backlash against labor's capital. In particular, the Koch brothers, political advocacy group, Americans for Prosperity and the Laura and John Arnold Foundation, among others, are funding pension reform efforts that are ostensibly aimed at solving any alleged pension crisis, one whose existence is debatable. How is the pension crisis debatable? Because I've certainly not heard any debate. All I've heard is it is inevitable because we simply don't have the money required to pay out pensions. So first of all, it's definitely debatable. You can find there are credible economists, credible actuaries on both sides of this debate. Yes, it's true. There are those who say that disaster is on the way, and there are those who say it's not true, that the funds are basically sound. There are some, unquestionably, there are some. There's a difference between a national crisis, which is what we're being told is the situation, and the potential for certain cities and counties and certain places to be in trouble. Yes, there are certain places that are in trouble. There are, there are other places that are exceptionally strong. You know, New York State is like 90% funded, Wisconsin, 90 You know, there are many places that are quite strong. And really, you know, the bottom line on this debate turns down, turns on a known unknown, to use that old famous phrase from Donald Rumsfeld, right? The known unknown, which is, what's the future performance of markets? If markets perform in the next 50 years the way they've performed in the last 50 to 100, then there's no crisis. They're fine. The real question is, 
what happens if they significantly underperform. But here's my main point, Chuck. What I worry about is that this, the whole conversation that is being had about public pension fund underfunding crisis and so on and so forth is really being used as a pretext to dismantle these funds, to take them apart, and to strip them of all their power by converting them all into a bunch of individually managed 401k accounts. That's what I really worry. So let's assume the worst, okay? Let's assume that these public pension funds are underfunded. Let's take the Koch brothers' line on this and just assume that disaster is headed our way. There are many potential solutions, okay? And the worst of them is the one that seems to be getting the most advocacy, which is break all these things up into individually managed 401ks. What do I worry about? All we hear about is the underfunding problem, right? And how much do we owe workers and what are we going to pay them? But I think there's another side to this whole story that we don't hear about, which is that these same funds are the future of labor shareholder activism. They have been doing it the last 15 years. They've been doing it with increasingly greater success, okay? And the critical feature that enables them to be activist is that they are large pooled sources of capital. CalPERS has $350 billion in assets. CalSTRS, which is the California State Teachers Fund, has two and a quarter billion. Uh, New York City, $190 billion, right? You know, when David Weber, with his individual, you know, 401k, and yes, you know, anybody who has one of those is still relatively lucky, but even me by myself, nobody cares if I adopt a responsible contractor policy or if I think the CEO is overpaid or whatever. Nobody cares. I'm, I'm just an individual. Far too small to matter. But when a CalPERS or a CalSTRS or a New York City funds shows up and they can file shareholder proposals and they can vote against the CEO's pay and they can bring lawsuits, right, suddenly everybody pays far more attention. I don't think that's... So you take these big pension funds now and in the name of so-called underfunding, break them up into millions of individually managed accounts. Essentially, I call this economic voter suppression. To me, it's no different than what has happened to labor itself. A pension is like a union and a 401k is like right to work. You know, we all know if you're if you have a job and you're not part of a union and you go to your boss and you say, um, I don't like my working conditions and I want more pay. The boss says, there's the door. See you later. Right. But if you're part of a union and can speak with collective voice, you have much more power. The exact same thing is true with these retirement accounts. If you're an individual investor, nobody cares what you have to say. But if you're part of a huge pension fund, suddenly people pay attention. So what I worry is that this whole underfunding story is being used to break up these pension funds. And frankly, I mean, this is, comes back to the stuff we were talking about earlier, because I do, look, you raise fair points about how these pension funds have sometimes been used against the interests of workers. You raise fair points about the dangers of engaging in, in, in capitalism and the capital markets in that way. However, I also worry that some people on the left do not appreciate the fact that these pension funds with their large, pooled, collective sources of capital are really a potential source in the 21st century for real power. And I show in the book how it's a source of real power. And it's important to preserve them. And what I worry is people just think, ah, you know, 
well, they're invested in the markets, they're too compromised, forget it. The left isn't going to protect them. Meanwhile, there is a massively well-funded campaign to attack these pensions and break them up. And I think just as the left has tried to mobilize and rally to protect workers and unions and so on and so forth, these pension funds have to be the next the next battlefront, because if they get broken up into, into millions of little shards that are meaningless and have no power, then I think it'll just be just even worse for workers who will see even less voice in the 21st century than they already have right now. The progressives in the Senate had an oh shit moment um, about a year ago. <laughs> Seems like a good time to have done that. Yeah, <laughs> only 30, 40 years too late. Well, you know. So it's, it's, you know, and so there's a recognition of like, we have to do things for workers fast and we need to do things that will help unions grow fast so that we don't keep losing elections to fascists. And so they're casting about for ideas and, you know, weren't getting such great ideas from Washington sources. And so, you know, I pitched them on a couple of things. You know, I talked about, look, you know, we have to fix the National Labor Relations Act. We need a very comprehensive fix of that. That basically involves taking out the worst parts from Taft-Hartley, putting in some fines, stuff like that. There's also a whole host of sort of uh, just general workers' protections that are outside of collective bargaining. You know, the the forced arbitration stuff, the misclassification stuff, and whether that's all separate bills or one big bill. There's a need for that. But then there were the two things that I have been uh, – three things really that I have been um, advocating for in these private conversations. One is um, changing the legal standard of employment from at will to just cause, uh, which would mean that workers can't be fired unless it's for a good performance related reason. So you can't, you can't be fired just because like you refuse to, you know, pick up your boss's dry cleaning and that's not a part of your job description. And another thing that I've been pitching is sort of looking at um, New York City's empowerment law. We need something like that nationwide. There are millions of workers who want to join a union right now. And unless there's a contract in place, their, their ability to join and to pay dues is, is very tricky. There are unions that are collecting dues through uh, credit card authorization, through, you know, avoided check, and it's a tremendous amount of work for not a lot of revenue. Uh, the turnover on those is actually tremendous. Even for, you know, teachers, uh, checks bounce, credit cards, you know, get frozen. And, you know, when we were doing this uh, in, in, in the charter schools in New Orleans, when, when my organizers and I were doing it, I forget the numbers exactly. I was at the AFT then. You'd sign up 500 members for a net gain of 200, right? So you're just sort of chasing your tail. So the idea of giving unions and other nonprofits and worker centers access to voluntary pay, payroll contributions from workers, um, that, that it's, it's an important part of rethinking how unions organize. Without that kind of access, there's a revenue gap. There's a revenue problem. And then, you know, the, the third thing is we need, in addition to the workplace-based contract unionism, we need a framework that lets worker advocates have access to all the workers in the entire industry all at once because the structure right now really is 
a trap when it's based on the employer. Um, cause if there's every incentive in the world for employers to subcontract, to shift work overseas, uh, for new, you know, Ubers to pop up, you know, and compete on a non-union basis. So, so there needs to be something that, you know, sets standards on an industrial level. We want a $15 minimum wage as a floor, right? But, you know, for there are, there are industries where the minimum wage should be something like 40 and to set it at 40 and to set standards on like for the education, there, there should be a standard of any school must offer some form of parental leave. Make that a standard and, you know, and, 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 and sort of take the issue out of collective bargaining. And the interesting thing that I noticed after this conversation is um, all of the ideas were were of an interest. And at the time I was uh, – and I still sort of am. I was having these sort of fundraising conversations about maybe we can take uh, Labor's Bill of Rights and turn it into some sort of campaign. Mm-hmm. And so in the course of – Having conversations with I'm, – I'm learning all this lingo now in this fundraising world. In the course of having conversations with validators. Um, <laughs> okay. What's a validator? A val- a va- I thought we were validators. <laughs> you are validators. I mean... uh, but validators are, are other public intellectuals, mm-hmm. you know, professors, folks at, at oh, so we are organizations. Right. <laughs> yes. To say like, no, these ideas are good. Yeah. So in the course of having those conversations, I found out that that – Everybody's had very similar conversations with this mm-hmm. senator's office uh, and not just similar in, in terms of they're picking their brains, but there's actually um, – it's it, almost an emerging consensus of like, yeah, these are the things we have to do. These have to be a part of, of yeah. the package of, of labor reforms. It can't just be let's tinker with the NLRB and think that we're somehow going to magically get back to 33 percent density and non-union employers are going to match the union standards. That, that that's – you know, that, that NLRB and contract unionism is – very, very important and, and shouldn't go away, but we need, we need more. So that was interesting. And then, you know, a couple really weeks after, very short weeks after the Senate Democrats introduced their, their better deal labor reform bill, which is essentially repealing Taft-Hartley. Yeah. So what that tells me is that repealing Taft-Hartley is now the centrist compromise within the Senate Democrats. Um, that it was the, it was the easiest of of the the bills to sort of get everybody to say like yeah that should be our official position right now, yeah. and right now being it doesn't have a you know it, it doesn't have a chance of passing, so there's a possibility also now, uh, particularly until November, yeah. that you you can for almost any crazy idea you can get somebody to say yeah let's turn that into a bill, yeah. and 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 so you can you, you it's an opportunity to float these sort of trial balloons. You know, does it remain on the agenda if the Democrats retake Congress and, and, and the White House? Um, I don't know. Does it maybe start some conversations about moving something like Just Cause as a state level uh, bill or even a ballot initiative? Perhaps. So it, it is an opportunity in a way that, you know, maybe not everybody sees that as an opportunity. Like, yeah, a bunch of dead letter uh, uh, bills doesn't seem like a win. But there's been such a lack of formally proposed big ideas for how to restore the power of workers and the power of unions that if this is a great time to, you know, get these ideas out there.
you're like me and so many others, you saw this clip a couple of days ago and it inspired you. It's video of workers at an Indianapolis uh, UPS plant. They're actually building a hub, basically. They're not UPS employees. They're contractors, as far as I know. And they're building a new hub for that company. ICE agents came in to target, or excuse me, not two, two workers were targeted. By, yeah, by their safety manager. By their safety manager. And two, yeah, excuse me, two workers were targeted by their safety manager. And this happened as a result. Amigos, get about this motherfucker. Y'all got him fucked up. Come on. <laughs> they sent a couple of them home. They all packed their shit up and shut this motherfucker down. Nigga, who y'all think y'all playing with? Mexico, man, this is what black people need to be on, man. I swear to God, I love this shit. They are packing they shit up and shutting this motherfucker. Huh? Oh, my mama. Oh, that shit. <laughs> they are not bullshitting. They packed up. Yeah, I see. It's over. Them motherfuckers now packed up and dipped. They thought they was going to play with these amigos, and they said, oh, yeah, we rise together, homie. And they leaving. And they not bullshitting. Take this in, man. Look at this, man. They shut this big motherfucker down today, man. We all going home, man. The SAs. Look, ain't no grinding, cutting, welding. This is motherfucker dead ass quiet. The Mexicans shut this motherfucker <laughs> down, nigga. Said, fuck you, bitch. And really, and really, see, this is what I'm talking about, baby. I swear to God, they got me here geeked up. Oh, my Malcolm X shit. Oh, my mama, nigga. Fuck the bullshit, nigga. Look at this. They shut this bitch down. They pissed them off, nigga. And they said, fuck you, we out. So that gentleman, Anton Dangerfield, is exactly right. That's literally what happens. The safety supervisor went and approached two Mexican employees, Mexico, potentially Mexican-American employees, uh, building the hub. As a result of that racial harassment, every single Mexican worker left. They dipped. They were gone. The project was over. And they brought a production facility to a complete standstill. They weren't unionized. They took enormous personal risk and they acted in solidarity in the moment across uh, all lines of risk and personal security. And this is the type of thing that we are going to increasingly need to see and we will see by definition. The Janus case came down. Uh, attack on public sector unions, which was confirmed by the Supreme Court, the Janus decision, allowing free riders, people to take advantage of union services without paying their dues. Mark Janus, very appropriately named gentleman, is now a senior fellow at some pathetic think tank somewhere, taking apparently a modest pie, a, a modest buyout for being a scumbag and a scab. The attacks on unions have been relentless and sustained for decades in this country. And they have tracked with every single other indicator that we know is a crisis in modern United States and in the global economy, skyrocketing inequality, increased poverty, lack of access, lack of opportunity, degraded standards across the board, and corporate exploitation. Corporate exploitation that takes advantage of a contractor economy, which hurts worker union uh, sort of unity 
hurts efforts of people to work together and sustain bonds and organizations because people are culturally trained to see themselves as freelancers and literally trained to work uh, in conditions of no security and no long-term organizing efforts. On the other hand, these companies and these approaches to organizations have left themselves open to different types of worker strikes and worker action. Because small bands of workers can, in spontaneous expressions like the one we saw at the plant in Indianapolis, exercise major chokeholds on global supply chains. That's the paradox of the modern economy. It might be weightless, insecure, and perpetually predatory for workers, but in fact, it's regimented highly organized and every second counts for a global corporation and delivery service like Amazon or UPS for that matter. So in order to break those networks and in order to sort of insert power in those institutions, there's many more decentralized opportunities than there may have been in the past. Now, obviously, wild wildcat strikes are an enormous risk. Everything from people losing jobs, losing benefits, losing money in the United States to, as we saw in 2012, the Maracana massacre where miners in South Africa were literally murdered by security forces uh, working perhaps very likely at the behest of that mine's executives. Wild str- wildcat strikes are dangerous. They're also the roots of the labor movement. They're also the roots of the power of the working class, which Marx wrote about and focused on not out of a moral concern or a romanticization, but because literally this was the fulcrum of counter power to capital, your labor, your ability to say no, your ability to step back, whether because you want more hours, more money, or maybe you want to own that your own business you work at, or maybe because you don't want racial harassment at your workplace or anywhere else for that matter. We're going to see more of this. We saw it in the teacher strikes that took place across the country, which went sort of across the nation this past year, but they actually go back to 2012. The Chicago's teachers union strike was an incredibly important moment. And we ourselves, even those of us who work in different sectors of the economy, those of us who might not be in unionized labor or might not even be in contexts like a UPS factor or an Amazon plant or being teachers as an example, we need to be thinking of different ways we can band together ourselves and also different ways that we can proactively support and sustain workers that take that risk. It's a raw exercise of power for what's right and it's the future that we're all going to need to shape if we want a truly democratized society. We've just heard clips today, starting with The Brian Lehrer Show, speaking with Jane McAlevey about the importance of unions for working people and the progressive movement. Angie Coiro, guest hosting on The Bradcast, talked with Thomas Newberger about how unions reveal the split on the left between corporate Democrats and the rest of us. The Zero Hour spoke with Roy Hausman about the case that is imposing forced arbitration on workers, disallowing class action lawsuits. 
This is Hell interviewed David Weber about his theory that labor needs to begin wielding its capital reserves in the form of its pension funds as a political weapon against predatory anti-worker capitalists. Belabored spoke with Sean Richmond about some ideas for labor reforms that Democrats could pick up and run with. And finally, we just heard a commentary from the Michael Brooks show breaking down the viral wildcat strike video and what we need to do to build union power in the U.S. As always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, this is Jennifer from Columbus, Ohio. Um, I'm calling because I just finished listening to your Bleeding Us to Death episode about healthcare costs. And I'm actually calling to ask for a favor. I would like to hear more about the single-payer system and exactly what that means. If there's any way you could do an episode to really dumb it down, because I myself am a Republican but don't really have never-ending time to do research on things like economics and how long-term healthcare systems actually turn out. So what I'd like to do, if you can, is explain some of that for me. Dumb it down as much as you possibly can. It would be appreciated. That way I can easily explain that to others. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. So to uh, Jennifer and her question about single-payer health care, I-, I will certainly take it into consideration to do an entire show explaining just the very basics of single payer and how it works. And, 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 you know, as she said, dumbing it down, I, I totally get that a show like this one and, and frankly, most of the shows that I highlight, we, we sort of talk beyond the basics. Uh, there, there's sort of a, an assumption of a baseline of knowledge. So if you are coming into the conversation a little late and you don't know the basics. I, I fully understand that frustration. So I may do a full show that at least incorporates uh, talk about the basics of single payer. In the meantime, let me give you some basics right now. So for uh, health insurance companies, I, I figure we can explain single payer by explaining how it is different from and also similar to health insurance companies because, you know, maybe you have a better sense of how a health insurance company works if you live in America. So a health insurance company takes in premiums, pays out healthcare costs, and has a nice little cushion of profit and and administrative fees that go on top of that. And that's how they function as a for-profit entity. Fairly simple concept. Think of providing healthcare uh, insurance from the company's perspective. If you're going to insure a single person, that's sort of risky. Like, uh, you know, it, it's like buying a, a whole lot of stock in a single company. That company could do amazingly well. It could also go, go bankrupt. So you could make a whole lot of money or you could lose all your money. That's where the term diversification comes from. You want to diversify your investments. So for a health insurance company, their investments are basically the people who they insure. 
people who are going to pay them premiums into the company. And so if, if, a, if there was a company that only insured one person, that would be extremely risky because a person could be perfectly healthy, but come down with like leukemia at a very young age and rack up millions of dollars in healthcare bills. Or they could be perfectly healthy until a ripe old age and hardly ever go see a doctor. You know, you just never know with people what's going to happen. So if you insure only one person, that's extremely risky. So health insurance companies obviously like to insure lots and lots and lots of people because it diversifies that risk. Some people are going to be really expensive. Some people are going to be really cheap and affordable. And it all evens out in the end. And the insurance company comes out with, you know, a healthy amount of profit for providing that service. So if you basically understand that the more people you insure, the less risky it is, you understand why health insurance companies want to insure lots and lots of people. And you can also understand why it's more cost effective to insure a pool of people, say a pool of people who all work together at the same corporation rather than insuring everyone one by one. So uh, this is, we get into sort of economies of scale. So it's obviously a lot smoother. Um, There are a lot of efficiencies built in to providing one health insurance policy to an entire corporation that covers all of their employees all at once because there's built-in diversification in that. If one corporation has tens or hundreds or thousands of employees, then it's going to be cheaper per person to insure all those people because the risk is so much lower. Because sure, maybe some people are going to be expensive, but probably not all of them, probably not even very many of them. And so that risk is sort of, it, it's diversified is and it's built in that way. So, so that's how an insurance company works. That's why it's better to insure a group of people instead of a single person. So just take that exact same logic and take it one step further past a a workplace being insured. Take it to the state level or the national level. Once you start having a conversation about single payer, literally all it means is that instead of having lots of, or, or in a lot of cases, very few insurance companies providing health insurance policies to the people of an area or to the people of a particular corporation, It's just the government providing a health insurance program. And so really the way it functions is very similar. The government takes in what is essentially premiums, except when it's the government, we call it taxes, and it pays out just like a health insurance company when there are health care costs to be paid for. The only difference is that when a government does it, when it's universal, That means it is the lowest possible amount of risk because the group is as large as it can possibly be. So if one person is extremely risky and 100 people is less risky, well, then 300 million people is going to be the most stable health market you can get because it is as diversified as can possibly be. So you know pretty much exactly how much everything is going to cost. And on average, it's going to be less than all of the different health insurance companies combined because it's so much simpler. There, As the name implies, there's a single payer. So there are all these economies of scale and efficiencies built into it, and the government doesn't need to make a profit. 
So really, you should just think of it as a health insurance company, except as being run by the government instead of a private entity. And the benefits are that there are no profits to be had, and the administrative costs are much, much lower because of all of the efficiencies built in. So that's the big picture. But let me just bring in one other element because it always gets brought up in conversations about the government and healthcare and health insurance companies. There is always, always, always the concern that the government is somehow going to get between you and your doctor. So let me tell you a story. When I was a kid, I had, you know, a family doctor that I went to every once in a while. You know, kids get sick pretty regularly. So I got to know this doctor. And then one day I got sick and we had to go to another doctor. And I said to my mom, you were on the way to the doctor. Hang on. How, why do we have to go to a new doctor? We like our old doctor. I want to go to that doctor. And she said, we can't go to that doctor anymore because dad got a new job. Imagine trying to explain that to a nine-year-old. Hang on. Let me get this straight. I have a doctor that I like. I want to go to that doctor and I can't go to that doctor because dad got a new job. What the hell does one thing have to do with another? That's ridiculous. So you look at that scenario from the insurance company perspective. My dad was obviously getting insurance through his employer from one insurance company. And that insurance company had a certain selection of doctors that all of the people insured by them could go to. They had deals with these doctors. They had arrangements. They had all the paperwork done. So, hey, you have a freedom of choice. You can pick any doctor from our list. Okay, great. But if you change jobs and you have a new insurer all of a sudden, well, now you have a new list of doctors to choose from, but you might not be able to choose the one that you had before, even though you live in exactly the same area. Now, contrast that with how it would work under single payer. Single payer covers everyone and every doctor. So every doctor is in your list to choose from. So you can literally choose any doctor you want to go to, and you would never, ever be told you're not allowed to go see the doctor that you've been seeing before, or you're not allowed to choose this doctor who you've heard good things about, or your friend recommended to you. There would never be a limit on doctors that way because there's no reason for it, because it's universal for both patients and doctors. So I just wanted to highlight that point because I, I know people often get hung up on it and they get worried that if they don't know how the new system is going to work, they're worried that it's going to be detrimental in some way that they're not sure how. And one of the possibilities is they're afraid they're going to lose their doctor because, frankly, they've been trained by health insurance companies to believe when you change health insurance companies, you may lose access to your doctor. And this is the one solution that would actually get rid of that problem entirely. But the people who really, really, really don't want to switch to single payer because it would cost them money, like the health insurance companies, fund misinformation campaigns to convince you that you would lose access to your doctor because governments are inherently evil somehow. But of course, the exact opposite is true. 
Now, finally, since we have a little bit of extra time here at the end, I'm just going to play a couple of bonus clips for you about universal healthcare. One is from a Canadian doctor who just goes through a few really good points about uh, the benefits of a universal healthcare system. And then I have another that is a, just a nice compilation of Canadians talking about how they feel about their healthcare and how they interact with it on a regular basis. So, you know, I, I gave you some of the, some of the high level uh, conceptual ideas of how single payer works, but I thought it would be useful to hear from some people who actually experience the Canadian healthcare system, which I want to point out is not perfect. The Canadian healthcare system is by no means perfect. They have debates among themselves all the time about how they could and should be improving their system. And frankly, some of them think that there isn't as much movement to improve their system because they can always compare themselves to the U.S., and think, well, why do we need to improve anything? We're already so far ahead. But frankly, there are other countries in the world, primarily in Europe, where things are done much better than in Canada. So these are people talking about the Canadian system, which itself is imperfect. And they still go on and on at length about how unbelievably superior it is to the status quo in America. As a practicing doctor, a hospital administrator, and a citizen... I am so proud to be part of a system where access to doctor and hospital services is truly based on need, not ability to pay. And I'm not the only one. In public polls, 94% of Canadians say that our healthcare system is a source of personal and collective pride, even more than ice hockey. Single-payer healthcare is also, as you know, less expensive. In Canada, our administrative overhead is less than 2% in our public plans, as compared to 18% in the private plans here in the U.S. We spend just under $5,000 per capita in Canada to, to cover everyone. You spend nearly $10,000 per capita, and yet tens of millions of people are uninsured. But most importantly, when my patients are sick... I do not need to ask if they have insurance or if they can afford to pay for my services. And throughout my pregnancy and for the birth of my daughter in a world-class hospital, I was never asked for money and I never received a bill. I just handed over this card, my Canadian healthcare card, to my doctor, and that was it. I wish that all of my American neighbors could experience the same simplicity in their moments of need. And I hope that the American people will seize this opportunity to declare to each other and to the rest of the world that you do believe access to health care is a human right. Just as a Canadian um, who's always had health care, I just don't get it. I mean, every westernized country in the world has it. And the U.S. doesn't. It's always just seemed remarkable to me. I mean, how can you not have it? Like, your health is everything. Health care in Canada is... Something of a birthright. I don't have anything bad to say about the health, our health system. It's done right by me. It allows Canadians to sit at home and know that uh, they're not going to get wiped out by, by medical bills. Anyone can access health care. Anybody at all, no matter how severe, severely sick they are or they're mildly sick, it's just paid for in our taxes. It's not like you see a statement, you never see how much it costs, but it's always there and it's taken care of. You just you book the appointment, you go, and the card, uh, just give them your number and... Uh, Good to go. If you're, if you're in trouble, you can get health care and not end up with a, um, a bill that's going to kill you. 
not anything that we even uh, talk much about anymore. It's something you take for granted. We rely on it. We just don't think about it. And it's only when we hear our neighbors talk about it, when we talk to our friends in the United States, that we understand what a gift it is. We get a little exercise when we watch the partisans take over the discussion about health care and drag our system in as some kind of boogeyman. How could you possibly trash being taken care of? Your whole family, 100% all the time. Because they don't know. I think it's crazy to trash the Canadian system. It's a, it's a, it's a great system. It, it offers us alternatives. Uh, I think for the average person, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a level of comfort. When Americans trash our healthcare system, it, it hurts a bit because I don't think they're getting the full picture or understand the system at all. It would be helpful to the discussion if they knew what they were talking about, if they'd had real experience here. I think if I lived in the United States, um, I would probably not, like, knowing that I had to cover, I have three children, I have uh, a husband, and knowing that the five of us had to be covered, I think I would be a little bit uh, nervous of the fact that if one of us were to lose our job or something like that, that there may not be coverage. I found out I have a hyperactive thyroid, so I was losing weight and I uh, wasn't sure what it was. In the last nine years, I've had knee replacement. Yeah, well, two years ago I had breast cancer. So. I'm hearing impaired. A few problems with circulation. Colon cancer. And pulmonary embolism. Cysts removed and open heart surgery. And so I called my doctor and um, went to see her and then she sort of made an assessment, sent me for blood work. And I just called my local hearing center and the government pays for it. I wasn't happy with what they had to say and I went to London. London, Ontario. And they phoned Wednesday for me to be in Toronto on Friday at noon to see the surgeon. I had surgery, I had um, chemotherapy, I had um, radiation, and I did not pay a cent for any of that. There's no money, no credit card, nothing exchanged. The, the medical bill is picked up. It's paid for. You don't pay anything, you show your card. In a normal situation, you would pay nothing for a doctor's visit. You were referred to a specialist, that would cost you nothing. If you went to a hospital for a procedure, that would cost you nothing, although increasingly sometimes there are additional costs for things like, oh, meals, or your wife was probably going to have to pay to park. Uh, I got $600 to help reimburse me for traveling to see the second opinion. And the government actually paid up to $500 per hearing aid. What would it have cost me to pay out? Well, I couldn't have done that. I don't have that kind of money. You're free to use any any doctor you want. I have my own doctor. Yes, you can choose your own doctor. Um, I have a GP that, that I go to. And if I have something that I need a specialist for, there's a list of doctors in the area. And if I'm not happy with them, I can get a second opinion and go to a bigger city, Toronto. I've never had it happen where I've asked for a particular doctor and not been able to get that doctor. Um, I selected my physician. My wife selected a different physician. Our relationship with them are purely our relationships with them, not prescribed by anybody else. No one tells us where to go or when or how. And if you're concerned about something, I've always got in usually same day, sometime next day. Sometimes it can take a few days, a couple of days. Generally, you can get in to see your primary care physician quite quickly. But if he's out of town, if he's not available, if he's booked solid and can't see you, you would then go to the emergency department, see another doctor, and that doctor would 
would treat you. There can be some waits, but I don't think they're excessive. I, we hear about these stories of long waits, but I don't know anyone who has had a serious medical problem because they've had to wait too long. If you're sick that morning, you can usually get in that day or in the next day or two. Absolutely. If, if you have elective type things, you're going to have to wait a while. Delay is more a case of priority. It's a triage thing. If someone comes into the queue ahead of you with a far more urgent need, they'll be taken first. If I'm at all concerned, I can get help. I can get back in the system really quickly. Got in right away too. I had the surgery within a month after they found it. If there's an emergency, you were at the head of the line. And if I had to have an operation that couldn't be done in Canada and had to go to the States for it, they'd pay for part of it. Uh, Most of it. I've heard of cases where the system may be busy in, uh, in Canada and they would refer you for that treatment in the United States. There are some cases where the government system in Canada will pay for a Canadian to go, say, to the United States and have something done. We all say, because my husband has a lot of American cousins, we're always like, we're so glad we're Canadian. Why shouldn't we look after one another? likes to see children suffer. You have enough worries when your child gets sick, but imagine that financial burden. We don't have that. We haven't even heard of that. Something like 92% of Canadians are happy with their health care. It's like you're living in a third world country. You have nowhere to go. Where's the safety net? We just go and you're taken care of and everybody is treated the same. And that's what a democratic society is, isn't it? So hopefully that was informative. And to be clear, I definitely think that there is a place in these debates and discussions for anecdotes. People do learn something from anecdotes and stories. That's how we process information better. It's important to get individual perspectives. But there's one thing I want to make really clear whenever talking about politics and policies. It is very important to remember this key concept that is summed up with this nice, concise little phrase, the plural of anecdote is not data. So just because a lot of people say something is good doesn't mean that the data would show that that thing is good. Similarly, if a lot of people say something is bad, that does not mean that that thing is bad. Even if they have personal examples of why a thing is bad, that does not mean that the system on whole is bad. So here's what you need to remember about single payer in general or the Canadian uh, system in particular, they get better health outcomes at half the price while covering everyone. And you never have to think about insurance again. You only think about your health, never the finances involved in keeping you healthy. As always, keep the comments coming in. The number to dial 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash left. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestoftheleft.com.